the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program, Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the intersection of Christian faith and Christian living. This is where doctrine meets duty, belief meets behavior. This is the program with you in mind where we try to ask and answer the questions that you care the most about, questions about God and the historical Jesus, questions about the Bible, questions about well, history, and sometimes prophecy. But from time to time, we have authors, artists, guests. Dr. Jason Lyle is a Christian astrophysicist, and uh, we met just prior to him getting his diploma, a, a PhD in astrophysics at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And and of course, Dr. Lyle has come a long way, baby. He is, of course, he wrote a number of planetarium shows for Creation Museum, including Created Cosmos, which I got to see a number of best-selling books on the topic of creation, Taking Back Astronomy, Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, the list goes on and on. Dr. Jason Lyle, thanks so much for being on the program. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me back on. Well, it's great to have you back on. And when I initially contacted your publicist, I so, so much wanted to talk about the James Webb Telescope, where you've put some articles, or at least one article, at biblicalscienceinstitute.com. And it occurred to me that uh, the James Webb Telescope, out there a million miles somewhere, is going to be peering into the skies and start sending us back images. I can't wait to have you back on to talk about that. But recently you wrote a series of articles on uh, William Lane Craig's book, or at least uh, an article that he published in relationship to the book, In Quest of the Historical Adam, where he argues that Adam is both historical and mythical. And um, so I wanted to ask you, a little bit about that. Obviously, William Lane Craig has done great work on evidentiary research for the existence of God, has done an admirable job in, in debating our atheist friends. But what help us understand how he manages to really make some very serious mistakes when it comes to this idea of Adam being a historical person, but not historical in the way that you and I seem to understand the historicity of, of Adam as he's presented in the Bible. Basically, Craig would say that Adam is a real person who really lived, and Paul talks, you know, Paul in the New Testament talks about uh, Adam and some of the consequences of his sin, and so Craig accepts that, but he believes that many of the details that are in, in Genesis in terms of how the fall occurred, he believes those are what he calls a mythical and and his sort of combination of, on the one hand, Adam is a real person who lived, and on the other hand, these details are embellished, they're, they're not literally true. He calls it mytho-history. Right. And uh, it, if that sounds contradictory, that's because I think it is contradictory. 
because myth, um, by its nature, myth is not really historical. Myth tends to fall into the category of fiction. It's not the only type of, type of fiction, but it certainly is a type of fiction. And so I don't think he can consistently maintain that. But the idea comes from, uh, it, and I know it comes from the fact that Craig has embraced the secular story of origins, namely the Big Bang, uh, evolution, the millions of years, and so on. He thinks that the scientists have just established that beyond reason. I take issue with that. I don't think mm-hmm. that's something that's been established at all. But because he embraces the secular story of origins, which is incompatible with Genesis, he has to reinterpret one of them. If he's going to say, yes, I believe Genesis, but I also believe in Darwinian evolution and the Big Bang. Uh, well, those are incompatible stories, and so he needs to uh, adjust one of them, and he's made the choice to adjust the Bible to fit uh, what he believes scientists have established. So I think that's the root of the whole issue. Now, my understanding of myth, and I've read several people on this subject, including C.S. Lewis, who talks great, you know, uh, uh, so there's interesting things about this idea of mythical. When 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 he says that, you know, we use the term fiction, but some people would use the term explanation. If it is, if he uses this contradictory term, but what does he mean by that? And and what is the myth supposed to say? In other words, he uses that term, it, it, I guess, in some sort of allegorical way. What is what is the story that? That he, that Genesis is telling according to William Lane Craig. Well, you know, I believe he's using the word myth inconsistently. I believe he's he's committing what we call an equivocation fallacy, mm-hmm. because early on he defines myth in a way that that would almost allow for a historical document like Genesis. Mm-hmm. A myth is something that uh, a, a society believes in. It's something that forms their worldview. Uh, now that's fine in as far as it goes, but. Just using that definition of myth, you you can't say that it's non-literal. You can't say that the events didn't really happen. And so he subtly then switches to the different definition of myth that requires allegorical thinking, things that are not literally so, basically, uh, which the first definition of myth might allow, a history that's that's literally so. In fact, by his first definition of myth, Mm -hmm. something that forms the worldview of a society, the Big Bang would qualify, and so would neo-Darwinian evolution. And yet he doesn't take those as figurative. He takes those literally. And so he's not really being consistent. He's switching from one definition of myth to the more popular definition of something that's fictional, something that's not literally true, without having uh, given ample notice for that change in terminology. Uh, establishing that Genesis is myth in the sense of it forms a worldview, which, which it does, um, does not establish that it's myth in the sense of figurative, allegorical, or non-literal. You know, Jason, I'd like to read what he's written about the atonement. Um, I know that he's come up with some tome, some some great big, what I guess, life's work. But in in this book, the in quest of the historical Adam, it's my understanding that if he comes to the conclusion that the nature of the fall of Adam and Eve are are symbolic myths, doesn't that sort of diminish or? do harm to the biblical understanding of sin what in other words what sin the sin that happens is a rebellion against god and obviously death doesn't seem to be symbolic and and the fall seems to have genuine um consequences in the very real world in which we live and that it requires a literal savior to save us what do you think he means when when he says sin 
the fallen sinner symbolic myths? I think he does believe that Adam uh, committed some kind of treason against God. He just doesn't believe that the details in Genesis are literally so, namely that there was a tree and that God told Adam not to eat from that tree, and Adam did. In fact, he kind of mocks that idea right. in his article summarizing his book, that you know, that's just silly, a tree that could convey eternal life or one that could cause mortality. Well, except that's what the Bible says. And, so, and, and that is important because that's what caused death to enter the world, according to Scripture. And uh, Adam sins, death being the penalty for sin. We, we get that idea from Genesis. Now, it's reiterated in the other Scriptures, but its origin is in Genesis. And if that's not literally true, if death really didn't come into the world as a result of Adam's sin, which it can't be if evolution's true. If evolution's true, death happened millions of years before Adam even existed. So if death did not come into the world as a result of Adam's sin, yeah, that that absolutely undermines the gospel. It, it, I, and I'm not saying that you can't be saved, that you know that you can't believe in the gospel and still and, and believe in evolution in millions of years. I'm just saying they're they're inconsistent logically because the gospel message is predicated on death being the penalty for sin, mm-hmm. which if Adam, which if it, it literally isn't, if Adam didn't really sin that way, then that doctrine's gone, and so it really doesn't make a lot of sense. My guest is Dr. Jason Weil, and you can find out more about him at his website, and I would encourage you to go there. There's so many great resources, and uh, go to biblicalscienceinstitute.com, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. There's, there's so much there, topics, videos, articles. This is Gino Geraci, and I'll be right back with, with more with Dr. Jason Weil. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, my guest, Dr. Jason Lyle. And, of course, I, I can't uh, recommend his website high enough. You go to uh, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. And, by the way, I had the pleasure, Jason, of watching the video series that you did on logic. And so I just wanted to give oh, you a okay. plug and kudos. Um, I, I don't want to digress too much, but but I know that um, – you you did this series because you 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 explain how important logic becomes for for biblical creationists and apologists to try and ask answer and respond to things that are going on, and uh, I couldn't agree more. Oh yes, yeah, it's second only to knowledge of the scriptures itself in terms of defending the faith. I would say logic is very very important. Now. Obviously, uh, William Lane Craig isn't the first person to suggest, um, you know, about this issue between a historical and a mythical Adam. But he seems to be the first person to embrace the idea that he is both historical and mythical. (laughs) Yes. So so, uh, for people who love William Lane Craig and have enjoyed the works that he's produced. What resources would you recommend? Um, obviously as, as they're trying to think through these sort of, not just sort of, but very important issues. You know, well, one, one in particular, the, the website, biblicalscienceinstitute.com, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the web, the article series that I did, it's actually pretty in depth. I took yeah, eight of them, right? Craig yeah, yeah, there's eight articles, and and I took an article that he himself had written, 
that summarizes his book. And I went through and did a point by point. I mean, I think I answered everything in terms of the the theology that he was trying to argue. Mm -hmm. He goes on and tries to do the science later, and that'll take another series, I think. But uh, I think that's pretty in-depth, and then there are other resources they can get. I have a book called Understanding Mm -hmm. Genesis, and we have it on our website. And it's really about how to read the Bible. How do we understand, how do we get to the author's intention? And that's really what proper exegesis and hermeneutics is, is all about. Get, how do we how do we know what Moses intended to convey? And I think we can get to that, mm-hmm. but not by following the approach that that Craig is doing, where he's where he's starting with an assumption that the modern uh, view of secular scientists about origins is correct, and then he's trying to allow a reading of Scripture that will harmonize with them. I don't think he's been successful because it's not exegetical. It's not something—his position is not something you would come to if you were just reading through the text. You would never come away with his conclusions. Yeah, one of the things, obviously, this false hermeneutic that he employs, and I'm a little bit um, disappointed— because he mm-hmm. talks about if you he talks about the primordial history of Genesis one through eleven, and he talks about mm-hmm. if they're taken literally, that they're so extraordinary as to be clearly false. He talks about magical trees with fruit that if they eaten imparts knowledge of good and evil or immortality, the presence of a talking snake. Um, but but when he when he talks about these fantastic elements, using his words, if taken literally. Um, can't be true, but are palpably false, clearly false, so they must be myth. Is this his way of saying, I can't believe that the Bible's really not true, and he's trying to to rescue that the narrative is in some way true, but in trying to rescue the narrative, he has to come up with his own fantastic view. Well, yeah, that's certainly true, and uh, certainly the case. That's what he's doing, clearly. And, it, it, you know, that, that kind of standard, you know, well, this can't be literal because it seems extraordinary to me. Well, we're talking about the God who spoke mm-hmm. the universe into existence. And so there's nothing that's, that's, that's too uh, infeasible, that's too, that's too extraordinary for God. And frankly, it, it seems odd to me that, that Craig embraces the secular alternative, which says the universe sprang into existence from nothing, from something smaller than an atom. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's extraordinary. So either way, the origin of the universe is something, it's not something we see every day, and so it's going to be extraordinary. So if God wanted to tell us how, we, how he literally did it, in, in terms of some of the literal details, is there any way God could have uh, spoken that? where Craig wouldn't say, well, that's just too fantastic for me to believe, so I have to interpret it as allegorical or something like that, which is what he seems to be doing. So this approach of, uh, you know, I'm going to interpret the Bible as anything that seems too extraordinary for me, it's non-literal. I'm sorry, but that won't work, because the resurrection is extraordinary, and yet Craig embraces that. So he's not really being consistent with his own um, attempted exegesis. Well, and see, this is what I find so fascinating, because if it isn't palpably true, if it is fantastic, and to use this term myth, then I go back to that pressing question, well, then what does it mean? What does it, mm. if it doesn't literally mean that, what does it mean? And did you, do you get any clear sense from William Lane Craig of what it, according to him, what it actually means if it doesn't mean what it says? Well, he did try to pull out a few of the generalities. He tried to say, well, you know, I think that, you know, Adam really did fall from a, from grace, but not because of, you know, the the details that the Bible indicates. 
And I call that the point is fallacy. The point is fallacy. And that's where um, I give a bunch of details. Let's say I, I want to argue that Seth is a really bad driver. And I point out he was in three car accidents last year. He's been given five speeding tickets. His license has been suspended. Of course, he's a bad driver. And then somebody comes along and says, actually, none of those things are really true. None of those things literally happened. But still, he's a really bad driver. Well, you can't argue that. If the details aren't true, you can't draw the generalization from them in terms of what they establish. And so if it's not the case that there was a tree, and it's not the case that God told Adam not to eat from the tree, and if it's not the case that Adam then violated that, you don't know that Adam fell from grace. You see, the Bible doesn't give any kind of indication that anything in Genesis is allegorical in terms of, you know, well, the fruit stands for this and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it's told in, in the straightforward Hebrew Vav consecutive, which is how the, the other historical books of the Bible in the Old Testament are recorded. There's no, there's no indication that it's anything other than history, and there are a lot of indications that it is real history, and Craig acknowledges that, which is why he can't say it's totally myth. He recognizes that things like the, the specific uh, details of the names and the genealogies and, the, num- and the, you know, the, the time span between one person and the next and so on, those would not occur in a story that's intended to be like a parable, where it's intended to you know, be allegorical and explain mm-hmm. some spiritual truth. No, those are the details that are consistent with the other historical sections of the Bible that Craig embraces as historical. After, he says after Genesis 12, it's, you know, it's historical. So um, I think he's being terribly inconsistent. Yeah, I'm troubled that he would come up with two genres for the one book, mm-hmm. because no biblical scholar has ever come to that conclusion. How could the how could this be a multiple genre and still retain some sort of integrity? And of course, the ancient Hebrews, by all means, didn't hold that view. Right, and of course, the genealogies they go seamlessly from Adam all the way into Abraham and beyond. And so there's there's no there's there's nothing in the text that would indicate any kind of break between the first eleven chapters and that which follows. Uh, Craig points out, rightly, that the, the focus zooms in on, on one person, Abraham, and his descendants. That's true, but there's no change in style. The, 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 the frequent use of the Bob consecutives, which is, uh, when, you know, in, 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 in case people don't know that, that's when you have, and this happened, and that happened, mm-hmm. and that happened. Uh, when in Hebrew, uh, we have and followed by a, a verb. It indicates a chain of events that are happening, and that's that's never used in the poetic sections of Scripture. You might have one or two vav consecutives, but you never have a long chain of them in poetic sections that are not necessarily intended to be taken in a literal sense. So there's no doubt that uh, the author of Genesis intended for the first 11 chapters to be taken just as literally as the chapters that follow. Well, I can't wait to have you back on BiblicalScienceInstitute.com. Go to BiblicalScienceInstitute.com. Can't wait, Jason, to have you back to talk astronomy, the worlds of creation, and whether or not the James Webb Telescope is going to solve the problem of distant starlight. Um, Go to BiblicalScienceInstitute.com. Dr. Jason Lyle, thanks so much for being my guest. My pleasure. Thank you. This is Gino Geraci. When we come back, we're going to be taking your calls, answering your questions. You know the number. It's 303-873-1935. There is gold, a wealth of information at biblicalscienceinstitute.com. This is Gino Geraci. Thanks so much, Dr. Jason Lyle.
Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935. And obviously, over the last couple of years, you know, we've had to unfortunately address the issue of the rise of the post-truth culture and uh, the rise, not just of the sexual revolution, but the implications and the consequences of a sexualized society where the most important freedom is sexual freedom, and then the rise of critical theory and the rise of secular religion. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have Dr. Jason Lyle on to talk about the issue of um, Adam and Eve, and of course— uh, William Lane Craig, who uh, obviously I've read his works, uh, he um, he's just been so helpful in so many different ways. But I think he gets this really, really wrong. And um, again, by wanting to have a mythical Adam and Eve and a historical Adam and Eve, or at least a mythical Genesis that doesn't exactly... Um, represent what the Bible says, how do we process all of that? Well, again, if you just assume even for a moment that Adam and Eve's story isn't to be understood literally, what are the consequences? Would Christianity remain essentially the same with a non-literal understanding of the story of Adam and Eve? Well, the answer is no. In fact, it would have serious implications for virtually every tenant doctrine of essential, historical, biblical Christianity. Hey, if you'd like to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. I'm not suggesting uh, that um, William Lane Craig is is arguing that Adam wasn't a real person. In his, in his view, Adam was a real person. But again, for those people who suggest the, the whole thing is mythical, if Adam isn't a real person, then real sin didn't enter the real world, like Paul argues in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul is making the remarkable argument that if Adam and Eve's story isn't taken literally, then how are we to explain, after Romans chapter 5, well, between Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 15, that, that that's not wrong. In other words, if a literal Adam didn't commit a literal sin, then the explanation for the presence of death goes unanswered. If Romans chapter 5, verse 12 is wrong... How do we know that the entirety of Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 15 is not wrong? If the story of Adam and Eve is dismissed, it's not taken literally. If they never really existed, then there was no one to rebel. There was no fall into sin. Satan, the great deceiver, 
would like nothing better than for people to believe that the Bible should be dismissed as so much nonsense. Or that if it's not dismissed as so much nonsense, then maybe you can embrace the view that the fall of man is a myth in order to try to explain the presence of sin or the presence of death or the presence of a broken world. Why is this a problem? Because once you go down that road of denying parts of the Bible, it's easy to erode trust. Why should we believe anything that the Bible says? What I'm going to suggest to you is one of the most powerful invitations that we have in the Bible is to believe that what it says about God and God's word and that it can be trusted. We can believe in God's word and we can trust what it says about God and we can trust the God who's revealed in the word of God. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. 303-873-1935. Jesus taught <clears throat> that God created one man and one woman. In Mark 10, it says, but from the beginning of creation, this is Jesus, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So again, we have to ask and answer the question. Is Adam and Eve the product of a unique creation? Or was humanity in the likeness of God somehow imbued and transferred in an evolutionary construct to animals that evolved over time through unguided processes? Well, according to the Bible, Jesus not only teaches that there was one man and one woman, he mentions Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, in Luke chapter 11, verse 51, where he says, From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. And, of course, the unthinkable has to be said out loud. Was Jesus wrong in his beliefs? And, of course, my view is no, Jesus was not wrong in his beliefs. That Jesus got it right when he talked about God's creation and Abel. Or did Jesus just simply know that there was no literal Adam and Eve, and he was just simply accommodating the cultural construct of his time, his teaching to the beliefs of the people? In other words, <laughs> was he lying? If Jesus is wrong in his beliefs, He's not God. And if Jesus is intentionally deceiving people, he's sinning and he can't be the Savior. But First Peter, of course, refutes that idea. 
It was with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of the Lamb, without spot or blemish. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Dwight, welcome to the program. Hey, Dwight. Do we have Dwight on the line, Jim? Went to the uh, uh, doctors to have a, a test done. It was an MRI with uh, contrast. And anyway, I found out after they did the uh, blood test that I couldn't do it. They said my kidneys had actually failed and weren't working at all. And that I would be looking at dialysis. And so anyway, I get home and I'm praying and the Lord leads me to Matthew chapter 21, verse 21. Uh And I read that. Actually, it's 20 and 21. Chapter 21, verse 20 and 21. And I read that, and I says, wow, I don't have to have kidneys that are, you know, dead or whatever. God can heal this. You know, I got a call the very next day. I stood on that from the nurse saying that my kidneys, uh, according to the uh, test they took again, my kidneys are perfectly fine. (laughs) They healed themselves. You know, kidneys don't heal themselves. Livers do. Well, praise the Lord. And, I again, I know that we live in a world where people think you're nuts, that I'm yeah. nuts, that, that, that a God, the God of the universe, could do something as crazy as take a passage like a fig tree withers so quickly and say, how could your kidneys wither so quickly and then just simply come back to life? <laughs> I got to go, but... Thanks for your call. Thanks for the praise report. Man, this is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Terry, welcome to the program. Are you there? I am here. Okay. But, yeah, I was having problems hearing you. But So could you do me a favor? Could you talk? Yes. Yeah, we're having some... Well, let's, let's go with Terry. Now, Terry, use your big voice so I can hear you All real right. good. Okay. Yeah, use your big radio voice. All right. Uh, I was wondering if you were familiar with Christian author Barry Bennett, and specifically his book, uh, He Healed Them All. You know, I am not, I can honestly say I'm not, not very familiar, but I do know, and and again, you know, it's not fair to comment on a book that I've never read, but I yeah. do know that he is has close ties and close relationship with Andrew Womack. And, okay. and again, um, I do know about Andrew Womack, and um, his is a ministry that I don't recommend. And the okay. reason why I don't recommend his ministry is because, and again, I, I don't want to suggest that, you know, guilt by association – <laughs> but Andrew Womack is a person who embraces word faith theology and the belief that you that it's never God's will for us to be sick. He wants every person healed every time. This that's his view. And that's if, exactly it, what I'm reading in this book so far, and I'm finding it kind of disturbing, either because I don't have enough faith or because I disagree with the underlying principle that he's uh, promoting. Right. Well, the underlying principle is false. It is false. And so when we ask and we answer the question that it's never God's will for us to be sick, this betrays a lack 
of understanding of what the Bible says about a number of issues, including suffering. And so okay. usually if he if if he's doing, you know, if, if if he has close ties and a relationship with Andrew Womack and teaches what Andrew Womack teaches, then he is a person who can't be trusted. Okay. Um, and so the way that I would answer that question is the Bible makes it clear that suffering happens and that we expect suffering, which could include illness. Now, they, they come up with ideas like, um, well, you know, Jesus, the Lord Jesus never told us to uh, pray for, you know, he told us to heal the sick. And Jesus told us to heal the sick and not pray for the sick. Well, this is nonsense. And so the the Bible certainly talks about don't suffer needlessly. The, certainly the Bible does talk about praying for the sick. But also the Bible gives us lots of reasons to believe that God allows sickness for reasons um, that we don't always necessarily understand. But okay. so the so this idea of healing on demand is not an idea that has biblical support. Okay. Do you have any? Um, it's my men's group that's going through this right now, and I'm, I, we just started it, and I'm kind of disturbed by uh, the first few chapters. Do you have any um, scriptural examples that would be? Uh, proof texts that to share with with folks that are wanting to espouse this notion that if you're not healed you don't have faith sure um you know they obviously isaiah 53 5 the people quote but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds were healed which is quoted in 1 Peter 2:24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you've been healed so they use that as a as a proof text okay. um but the word translated healed can mean spiritual or physical healing now again i am not a person who disbelieves in healing or Same. that the bible suggests that we pray for healing but the context right. is clear that the verse is talking about sin and righteousness. It's not talking about sickness and disease. So if we ask and we answer the question, well, why doesn't God heal everybody? And what I would say is, as a Bible study group, hey, let's all chip in and give this guy a free trip to Children's Hospital in Aurora and then clean it out. Heal everybody. Uh-huh. Oh, and by the way, do you think that's going to happen? No, and what I suspect is that the reason given is these are people that don't have faith and don't believe it's going to happen. And I see, or, that, or, so, the, so there we go, don't we? There we go. Right. In other words, healing is always inhibited by a person's quote-unquote lack of faith. Yep. Or um, some other reason. Yep. Now, again, the way that I would answer that is it is true that a lot of 
Jesus's ministry. He went throughout Galilee teaching, preaching, healing every disease and sickness because it becomes a type and a picture of what's going to happen in the in 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 Christ's kingdom. Okay. And so again, this healing on demand is is not a, a biblical view. And, you know, I, I, it seems to me that there's a great article that was posted. Let me see if I can find it. Um, this is back in the day on, on uh, equip.org, Healing on Demand. Let me see if I can find it. Um, and there's there, there should be... What I what I'm getting is the first Peter chapter two verse twenty four passage that that I just quoted. Um, again, two twenty four. Yeah, and um, there's there's several articles that have been posted at equip dot org, including um, why. They misunderstand. In other words, what we have to ask and answer is: Does the B- the Bible teach healing on demand? Where is that in the Bible? And they'll point to that passage, but that's not what it means. Okay. So, whenever we read the Bible, you have to develop a sense of the context, and what is the sense in the whole of First Peter? First Peter um, is in the in the midst of trial. And and again, I think of several um, several issues in the Bible where Trophimus is left because he's sick, um, and I think we have an article. Um, can everyone be healed? Is that the article that I can remember? And is this it, on it, Got it, Questions? Yeah, at gotquestions dot org. Um, And I don't know if we if we actually have that specific one, but again, there's an article entitled "Are Faith Healers for Real?" Okay, and um, that addresses this issue of people who take advantage of others in this idea of healing on demand. So we as Christians okay. actually do believe in healing. Right. But, but we don't believe in healing on demand, that you are the one who has to demand your miracle or your healing. So obviously, I still don't know everything about the person you're talking about, but I know enough about Andrew Womack and um, that particular view that— Well, what you described with him is is consistent with the first few chapters of this book that I've that I've read. Oh, I found the article before you go. Okay. Is it some okay. is it sometimes God's will for believers to be sick? So go to gotquestions.org, okay. type in is it sometimes God's will for to be sick because they obviously believe never. No never. Right. No never. And I think that article will give you some guidance, okay? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.